0: All right, so something that I think that everybody in this room can say amen to is, Christian or not, is that things are not as they should be, right? Amen, thank you. Uh, I think this is kind of a sense that undergirds a lot of conversations that we're having right now. It's the flavor of a lot of conversations in our world. And depending on who you ask, you'll get a very different set of answers about what needs to change in order to make the world as it ought to be. People tend to have their own laundry lists of like causes or campaigns or things that hold the key to positive change in our world. Some of them being, you know, inaffordable housing, too many neighborhoods gentrifying, too many guns, not enough guns, we need more secure borders, we lack compassion, Nickelback is still making music. You know, whatever your list is of things, we rag on Nickelback a lot in this church. Um, no, No one's idea of what must change is the same as anybody else's. And yet, our culture seems to be obsessed with the notion of progress. You know, that we're always moving forward towards a better version of ourselves, of society, of the world. But what, we, what we've experienced over the last century is something very different. Uh, and author G.K. Chesterton, in his amazing book, Orthodoxy, tackles this notion of progress as something that's inherently good. He says, progress should mean that we are always changing the world to suit the vision. Progress does mean, just now, that we are always changing the vision. It should mean that we are slow but sure in bringing justice and mercy among men. It does mean that we are very swift in doubting the desirability of justice and mercy. Progress should mean that we are always walking towards heaven. It does mean that heaven is always walking away from us. We are not altering the real to suit the ideal. We are altering the ideal. It is easier. And one big part of why we always change the ideal is that we can't see the big picture. All we know is that things aren't the way they should be, and we point to this problem or that problem as examples. So what is the ideal that we long for but we can't ever achieve? It's a world without pain or without death or tears. And our friend, the stranger, as we've been calling him, the author of the book of Hebrews, later on in the book describes this ideal as a city whose designer and builder is God. And yet, in our passage this morning, he's ready to acknowledge that we are not there yet. By any means, we have not reached that vision. And the same thing that our society is worrying about today, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were also frustrated with. Things are not as they should be. And what we've learned in these past two weeks in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is supreme. He's superior in every way, and he is now reigning over the world from heaven. The problem is that his readers, they ain't buying it. <laughs> All right? And maybe that's you as well. Maybe, maybe you ain't buying it. There's a, there's a disconnect. They're experiencing this political, social, and physical pressure To abandon their faith in Jesus, to give up and to go back to what is comfortable because apparently nothing has changed. In other words, if Jesus is supposed to be in charge, why am I experiencing isolation, persecution, loneliness, and suffering? For those of you who follow Jesus in this room, haven't we all wrestled with that? And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and that's been one of the cards you have up your sleeve for when your Christian friends try to sell you on Jesus. Uh, you know, what is going on? Why aren't we experiencing him reigning on the throne? The question for this morning is this. What if the perspective we need is not to zoom out and to see the big picture, but to zoom in and see the pattern, to trace the common thread that ties the tapestry together. That is what our author, the stranger, provides for us in this section. So last week, we pulled back to a mountaintop view of why Jesus is greater than angels because he brought a better message. And this week, we zoom in and see that he's also greater because he became lower, like you and me. So let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Of course, we're speaking about the world to come. You all knew that that was happening, right? We were all talking about the world to come. What is the world to come? Uh, It's actually a really common phrase in Hebrew. Uh, It's called olam haba, and it's basically just the word for afterlife or heaven. So, I don't know when the author started talking about the world to come, but apparently we are now. Uh, But you have to remember that this book is kind of like an insider conversation. It's like a Jewish conversation. He just assumes that his readers know a lot of the things that he's already referring to. So it's this common expression of heaven. What we talked about a couple weeks ago is that God is speaking to the world by his son because he has inaugurated what we call the last days. And in the Jewish worldview there were very clear-cut expectations about what should be happening in these last days, namely that all nations around the world are supposed to come and worship God in the land of Israel and the Messiah, the king, has wiped out all of Israel's enemies. And the author is writing to a whole bunch of Jewish people like myself who believe that Jesus is that king, and that's why we're talking about the world to come. But there's this disconnect, like, okay, okay, so Jesus is the Messiah, that's amazing, but here I am still suffering, and he's not doing anything about it. What is going on? Well, the stranger's answer comes starting in verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So here he's quoting from the Hebrew Scriptures, from Psalm chapter 8, And this is not just like a throwaway quote. He's not just trying to prove a point and like cite something he found in Wikipedia. This is like the key to understanding who Jesus is, his very nature, the son of man, as he's referred to here. Son of man means that Jesus is a perfect representative of humanity. This is the way that Jesus referred to himself while he was on the earth doing ministry. He's our representative. And in creation, everything was put in subjection to humanity. In Genesis, when God created mankind, he put all of the animals and everything in subjection to mankind. But now, everything, including angels, as we saw last week, are, is put in subjection to Jesus, the Son of Man. So basically, the Son of God is in charge of not only this world, but also the world to come. But this only happened after he was made lower for a little while. Keep this in mind. So quickly, as soon as this author proclaims that everything is subjected to the Son of Man, he adds the caveat, we don't yet see everything subjected to him. What? (laughs) Is he contradicting himself here? Everything is subjected to him. We don't yet see everything subjected to him. So I just want to unpack that because what might seem like a blatant contradiction is actually one of the most fundamental characteristics of the Christian experience. And it is the dilemma of the now and the not yet. Nothing is outside his control and we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. How can these two things be true at the same time? What the author is getting at here is that the spiritual certainty that God is objectively in control, and yet our subjective experience of life can reflect something completely different. So the world to come, also known as the kingdom of God, has been inaugurated. It's begun, but it's not been consummated. It is still not yet. And this is the foundation to understanding the most gut-wrenching questions of faith today. If Jesus is on the throne, why is this happening to me? And the answer is to understand the pattern of the incarnation. That's the theological term. Let me explain. Let's read verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What this is saying is that God himself enters time and space, the same exalted son of God we've been talking about who is greater than the angels is also the son of man who became lower than them. Jesus' incarnation is his humiliation, which changes everything. If the one who is supposed to be holding the world together got down into the dirt, if this king became a servant, then something else entirely is going on here. Yes, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we do see him. Friends, this is the essence of faith. What the author says here, when we see him, Jesus, the word here for see implies more than just physical perception, but also spiritual perception. What are we supposed to see? When we focus more on circumstances, on difficult things going on in our life, things start to fall apart. But when we look at Jesus, things start to fit together and make sense. Meaning Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, not in spite of it. When we look at Jesus, we see the crimson thread that is traced through the tapestry of God's redemptive plan. We see the pattern that he who was made low for a time is now crowned and exalted. It is the same meantime that we now experience, the time between humiliation and exaltation, the time between the now and the not yet. So maybe this meantime is actually meaningful. Maybe the difficulty that we are experiencing now is actually bubbling over with potential for something glorious. And to understand how that is possible, we first have to understand how that worked with Jesus. Let's read verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we see that the suffering was not only meaningful, it was necessary. It was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that's you and I, God's people, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Fitting, it's appropriate, is another word that translates that, because it traces out this pattern that we're talking about. We know this about the character of God. God's plan is to bring many sons and daughters, many people to glory. God wants you and me to experience the same type of glory that Jesus experienced. But what we need to see is that the way that this was brought about makes it look like we are on the losing side he was made perfect through suffering and if our founder was made perfect through suffering what should we expect that word founder could also mean leader or originator but perfect this word perfect through suffering does not mean perfectly in in morality and character or anything like that it means completion it means fulfillment of the mission. For Jesus to complete the mission of bringing many sons to glory, he had to suffer. And this means that he had to become one of us. He had to share in our experiences, our frailties, our temptations, yet without sin. The son of God became a son of Adam so that we could become children of God. And in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he quotes a early Christian hymn, a song, that talks about this very thing. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Do we see how that fleshes out this pattern? Let's read on because the stranger gives us the clue to where we come in the picture. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. One source, source, both the sanctified and the sanctifier. That is, the ones who are being made holy, us, and the one who makes us holy, Jesus. And the source of both is God. So why is he not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters? Because God is our source. God is our Father. Jesus is like our big brother. Right? We kind of share his family resemblance now. This is what the Bible calls adoption that we were not in the family of God and we were brought into the family of God through Jesus' death. We share in his inheritance. And this also means emulating his life, even the difficult parts. Author and missionary Leslie Newbegin says. As it lives in the power of the Spirit, and as it shares in the suffering and rejection of Jesus, the church will learn more and more fully what it means that Jesus is the clue to history, its source, and its goal. Let's read on, verse 12. He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing... Your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So, what he's doing here is he's quoting a bunch of Old Testament passages, kind of one after another, to continue to make his point that we have been brought into the family of God through the work of Jesus. And he's quoting from Psalm chapter 22 which is a very important psalm. It is the psalm that begins with the famous words that Jesus shouted out on the cross during his suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross experiencing God's wrath. Elsewhere in Psalm 22, it says, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him, just as people were surrounding the cross and mocking Jesus as he was there suffering for the sins of humanity. So when the author quotes this passage from Psalm 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, it says that after Jesus suffered this most gruesome death and torture, the Messiah is singing, (laughs) which is not what you'd expect, right? After you experience suffering and death, he's singing, something is going on. So similarly, the other passage that he quotes is Isaiah chapter eight. And what comes right before the passage that he quotes illuminates how he is using it. It calls the Messiah a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The suffering and the confusion is accomplishing something. The author is illustrating this pattern that we've been talking about so vividly that suffering is doing something, it's accomplishing something meaningful. He's saying that at the very moment when it seemed to everyone else that Jesus had failed, he was securing the greatest victory the world will ever know. Through his suffering and death, he was making a place for us in the family of God. Friends, what if at the very moment that our lives seem to be going completely wrong and God is nowhere to be found, we are being intricately woven into the pattern of Jesus? this brings us to a really important question that the author hasn't addressed yet, which is why? Why was any of this necessary? Did Jesus come to suffer and to die just to leave us uh, an example to follow or is something else going on? Let's read verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. But you didn't know we were going to be talking about the devil this morning, but we are, all right? And before we could enter family of God, there were obstacles that needed to be dealt with. This, this is what the author is talking about right now. There's death and there is sin that are obstacles that prevent us from entering the family of God. So how does Jesus' death destroy the devil? And why does the devil have the power of death? So let's let's just stop right here and, and talk about what we mean when we say the devil, all right? Yes, we believe in a real, actual devil, Satan, spiritually evil in every sense. He is not, you know, the dark side of the force, okay? He's not the yin of the yin and yang, and he's not a little, you know, red guy with a pitchfork who runs hell like a bad B&B, okay? (laughs) The Bible actually says that he was once an angel, all right, who wanted to overthrow God's rule, thus epitomizing sin, which is rebellion, which is treason against God, and he was thrown out of God's presence, taking legions of other backslidden angels with him. But the first time we see this character showing up in the Bible, and this is significant for us, is in the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning, when death comes crashing in to God's good world as an intruder because of sin, so humanity's desire to usurp, usurp God's authority, this rebellion is what we call sin. And it was through temptation from the devil in the form of a serpent that death entered in the world. And in God's wisdom, it was through death that death was defeated. Because Jesus became one of us, he tasted death for us, dismantling the only real weapon that the devil has, which is fear. Now this point is kind of hard for some of us to swallow because what the author says is that fear of death leads to slavery. And you might be here, sitting here thinking, I'm not enslaved to anybody. What is this guy even talking about? But if you've experienced this death, talking about death is not something that we do well in our culture today. It's kind of like the final taboo. Like we can talk about anything except for the fact that we're all one day going to die. And our culture insulates itself from pain and suffering and death. And because of this, death is actually our slave master. Because we are afraid to face it. Because what you ultimately fear has more power over you than you can know. And this is how death conditions us to be slaves. Fear of death prevents us from really living at all. Or maybe you don't think you're afraid of death. Maybe you think that death is meaningless and therefore life is meaningless, which brings its own kind of slavery because you are now captive to that absurdity, which brings anxiety and despair. And ironically, though, Today, many people think that this is truly freedom. To acknowledge that death is absurd and therefore life is meaningless, that there's no point, actually makes you free to live. But this only launches us into a quest to find meaning in all of the things of life that cannot provide it. Relationships, success, career, fame, money. The way that we cope is that we try to trick ourselves into not thinking about the meaninglessness of it all. And if this is you, I encourage you to think about this right now. This is the definition of irrational. Right? It means that rather than thinking through logically what you believe about the world and acting on it, you are actually living in spite of what you believe. The famous author Leo Tolstoy said it this way. He said, one can only live while one is intoxicated with life. As soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that it is all a mere fraud and a stupid fraud. So there you go. Amen. Let's go home. So for Christians, though, it is the exact opposite. For a Christian who is feeling hopeless, it is only because they are not actively believing what they profess to believe. Another author and pastor in New York, Tim Keller, says this, Christians do not say to themselves, stop thinking out the implications of what you believe about the universe. Just try to enjoy the day. (laughs) No, if a Christian is feeling downcast and meaningless, it is because, in a sense, she is not being rational enough. We're not thinking out what we believe about the world and living on it because what we know is that difficulty and even suffering are tools that God can and does use to shape us. But out of a desire to turn this world into somewhat of a utopia, we actually attempt to rid it of the difficulty and suffering that actually points us there. Because we are not promised a life of comfort we're promised a life of adventure. That's exciting. We're not promised a life without failure. We are promised a life without fear. We are not promised a life without suffering. We are promised a life of meaning. And we are not promised a life without death. We are promised that death leads to life. Now, we need to stop because some might be thinking, okay, what is all of this Christian talk about? You know, suffering and death, and why are we talking about it being good? This is weird. This is like a death cult, right? No, okay. This is, nothing could be further from the truth, okay? What we have said is that death is a reality that must be dealt with. To not face it head on is to be enslaved by it. But it is only in the Christian faith that it says that not only is death an intruder due to humanity's rebellion, but that through death, the Son of God on our behalf, the true power of death is defanged. And now, it is the means by which everyone can inherit eternal life. But that Jesus' death on our behalf does not mean that we escape from suffering. What we have said is that it is an invitation for us to be woven into the contours of his life. And the New Testament affirms this many times. I'm just going to rattle these off. They're going to be on the screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Romans 8, 16, we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, friends, we begin to see what the book of Hebrews is pushing us towards, which is hope. Hope is cannot be diminished by suffering. It's like wind on a brush fire. Real hope comes alive through suffering. All of our stru- suffering and struggle in the face of death means something. For Jesus, it was the means to save us, his brothers and sisters. And for us, it is the means to become like our big brother. However, to receive his victory over death, we first need to accept that his death was for us. And to accept his sacrifice for sin, we need to deal with the reality of our own sin. And this is what the stranger talks about in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sin's of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why was it fitting for God to make Jesus perfect through suffering? Because he had to become like us so he could suffer on our behalf. And this is the point. If we were going to be brought into the family of God, our sin had to first be removed. God's holiness means that he exists apart from sin and that he longs to bring us close. He longs to bring us into his family. So in God's wisdom, in his justice and in his mercy, he allowed Jesus to be offered as a perfect substitute, a propitiation. That's what that word means, a substitute. Jesus is both the priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice being offered. And we'll get a lot more into what it means that Jesus is our priest in chapter four, which we're going to get to in like eight years. But for now, it's enough to say that he is the gate. He is the entry point for our entrance into the family of God. And because Jesus died instead of us, God transfers his sinless record onto our account, and we are woven into the Jesus-shaped pattern in the tapestry of redemption. Only if we trust him for his work on our behalf can we begin to follow his example. Our suffering will not have meaning if we do not first accept his suffering for us. We cannot face death without fear unless we first receive his death in our place. And this was brought home to me several years ago when one of my best friends, uh, whose name was Sean, he was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, and he died less than a year later. But in those few months when he was living with his own death, what was most real for him was his hope in God. And he used this painful circumstance as an opportunity, and he broadcast his faith in God all over the internet, okay? He was a blogger. No one ever read his blog before he got cancer, and then he started blogging furiously, and he had thousands of followers. It was all over social media, and by the time he passed away, thousands of people had heard his story, and he even requested that his memorial service be live-streamed for all of these people to see the hope that he and his family had placed in God what true hope looks like, which is facing death without fear. And in the final moments of his life, when he was lying in that hospital bed, he gathered all of his family around him and he prayed for them. He prayed for their faith to be strengthened This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says, when perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So here we are in the meantime, the little while that we too, like Jesus, are being made lower, and we are experiencing that suffering, that difficulty. Why does there have to be a meantime at all? See, just like our founder, just like our big brother, we are being made perfect, not in spite of our suffering, but through our suffering. Let's pray.